Welcome to the latest edition of the Talk Spotlight Series, the series that highlights the people, the companies, and the technologies coming together to shape the future of retail. I'm your host, Chris Walton. And I'm Ann Mazinga. And today we're going deep on one of those topics around which Ann and I, frankly, we just can't get enough education, and that is micro-fulfillment. So please join us in welcoming James Osborne, the Vice President of Business Development at TGW to the program. James, welcome to today's show. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Anne. I'm very excited to be here. I'm very excited because I'm a huge fan and I'm also very excited about micro-fulfillment. So thanks for having me. You're Absolutely. in the right spot then. You're in the right spot. Yes, we love huge fans. We love interviewing huge fans. It's one of our favorite things to do, isn't it, Anne? Yes, and micro-fulfillment. And uh, we're <laughs> really excited to have you. It's like peanut butter and jelly. It's I like know. It's like two together, you know? This is it. I'm living the dream. Oh my gosh, James. Well, I, I'm really thankful to have you here because I think that what Chris and I really love about uh, working with you and your team at TGW is just the different approach that I think you take to how retailers and the audience should be considering their approach to micro-fulfillment. So I think it makes the most sense to start off by just telling people a little bit about TGW and then about your role specifically at the company. Yes, thank you, Anne. So yes, we we probably are the best kept secret in the industry, and I'm sure that most most of your listeners will not know who we are. Uh, we are a technology integrator from from Austria in Europe. Uh, we're relatively new to the US market, um, and we're now trying to bring our uh, our technology that we've developed in, into uh, into um, yeah the land of the free. Love it. I love it. Um, well, tell us a little bit about your role there specifically what are you doing day to day at tgw to help retailers in the us listening kind of become more aware of you and put it into practice sure so i'm the grocery guy and <laughs> uh, you know in in our world that means that i'm responsible for trying to to figure out how to help retailers invest in technology of the likes that we make and and sell, so we specialize in in uh, uh, product storage and order retrieval systems. We we focus heavily on grocery and fashion uh, as a business, and you know to to drop a few brands in there. You know we have currently partnered with the likes of Ocado, uh, and with them Kroger. We've done a lot of work with Picnic in Holland, a lot of work with Asda in the UK. So we're kind of we've been we've been at grocery online for quite a while and how right. does one become the grocery guy james what <laughs> what gives what, what's your background that gives you that uh that title yeah you can't get that title unless you actually work for a grocery <laughs> company can you so yeah my background no. is a grocery yeah yeah that's okay. official um so yep yeah, so uh, 20, 20 or so years with with some some retailers in europe i have uh, been I've, I've done the rounds so yeah, i've okay. helped Managed stock boy? Were you a stock boy at one time? Trolley, trolley guy. Trolley I was the guy? Christmas trolley guy. Trolley yeah. guy. All right. Very nice. Yeah, yeah, I've Very done nice. it all. But but no, ultimately I ended up helping retailers invest in technology similar to that which I'm now selling. So what's that poacher turned gamekeeper? Or I don't know if you have that saying. <laughs> poacher yeah. turned gamekeeper. We don't, Do you know? but I understand okay. what it means. Yes, I think we get it. We get it. That's a great saying. We might have to borrow that yeah. one. All right. Well, let's 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 get squared in here and let's get narrowed or narrowed in, I should say. So talk to us about 
talk to us about micro fulfillment and its evolution. You know, specifically, one question I'm curious to ask you particularly is, how do you define micro fulfillment? There's a lot of definitions we've heard over the years, and and also, how does the concept as a whole stand in relation to the United States versus over in Europe? Yeah. Oh my gosh, Chris, it is really difficult to define it. And I, and I think uh, that's, that's testimony to the fact that as a concept itself, it's developing constantly. So, you know, I think for me, micro fulfillment starts at somewhere between 500 to a thousand orders a day as a, as a physical entity. And probably a common misconception for me is that micro fulfillment is co-located with a retail unit. And I, I, I don't see that personally. I see it as it can be a standalone solution, uh, much smaller than 500. And we get into the world of nano uh, right. fulfillment. Um, and I think larger is probably a regional center. So I'm in the thousand orders a day camp. Um, what your second part was about the, the key differences, I think, between the US and the UK, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, we you, you guys tend to go big on, on everything, and that includes <laughs> the stores. Um, so, so typically solutions in the UK and in Europe are a lot smaller. Our, our stores are smaller um, and the, the areas that they serve tend to be smaller. We also, the big difference really is in the level of curbside collection. So our level of oh. curbside is, is really incredibly low compared to the US. And so the challenges in Europe tend to be about delivery models um, and delivery efficiency, much more so than actually picking and picking efficiency. So we've got different challenges. Um, the things that are the same, I think, are, are very much that we're, um, you know, we have legacy stores. So when we're putting technology into stores, it's never a store that was designed to have automation in it. So we have that challenge in common in the two markets. That's interesting. So I'm, I'm curious too, James. So, you know, the the one thing we always hear about one of the big differences is that just the density of the population of say London versus the suburban US. And you mentioned also that, you know, that one of the differences is picking efficiency being a requirement here because of curbside relative to last mile. So like, how, how, do, how do you make sense of those dynamics here, the urban density against the needs? Cause it seems like some of what we hear with micro fulfillment is you get the picking and the last mile efficiency. So, so how, how would you, how would you sort through all that for us? All right. So let's let's look at what happens in the stores in, in the UK in particular. So these guys have probably been at it for a little bit longer. So it's a slightly more mature market. And that means that the retailers themselves have had a bit more time to work on software solutions. There's a lot of in-house picking solutions. They're very protective over these solutions. And, and actually, we see on average picking efficiencies somewhere between a third and a half the costs of, of picking in the US. So there's a real mm. opportunity there, not just the software, but also the fact that the, star, the, the, the stores are smaller, makes smaller. it more efficient. Yeah, yeah. Right, less, so we're seeing- Less skews, yeah. Yeah, less skews, less walking, less mm -hmm. distance. Um, also, a lot of the software kind of um, will pick multiple orders simultaneously. So, you know, we're seeing in the trolleys that they're pushing around, you know, some very clever uh, thinking going on in how those orders are built in the trolleys. Yeah. So they've really kind of perfected that, I think, a lot of the UK retailers. And I'm keen to see that go over 
to the US. I think what the US have been much more prepared to do, actually, than Europe is they've been prepared to invest, to try and learn. So, you know, if they see a good idea, they'll back it, they'll give it a go. They'll really find out about how to squeeze it and get the best out of it. Actually, there's a bit of an attitude of we'll wait and see what our competitors are doing over in Europe. Uh, and actually, so that's that's a real positive about the US market. Well, James, as you go into the U.S. market a little bit more, what are you seeing happen with those retailers? What are they concerned about as they try to understand the right micro-fulfillment solution for their operations? Well, I think uh, when we talk to a retailer for the first time, they tend to approach it as a theoretical thing. So help Mm, us work on the strategy, help us work on the business case. And actually what we bring to the party is generally a very practical lens. So we'll go, we'll look at the real estate, we'll talk about the power generation, the quality of the concrete. And this is is often the conversation that they weren't expecting because every store is different, right? Um, Right, right. And that's the real that's the real headache with micro fulfillment. So when we think about creating something small that we can replicate many many times, the fact that all of our stores are different, different, uh, you know, not just different sizes, but there's all sorts of different dynamics going on in them, from you know customer base to to product to power to flooring and all layout issues, you know. So so it becomes very difficult then to repeat something. Um, and James, so find... I have a I have a quick question. Like, is that does that vary then a lot in the UK right now versus the US? I feel like the UK, because it's more dense, different types of footprints for the stores based on you know what part of the city that they're in. Are you finding that there's more consistency when you're going in and talking about like concrete load and all the other like electrical requirements? Like, is that more, I guess, um, Just consistent? No. Not at all, actually. Yeah. And if okay. you look at the history, yeah, if you look at the history of the European grocery market, it's built up over a series of amalgamations and consolidations. And these stores are all real legacy stores. So some okay. of them are, yeah, the two the same brand, two stores five miles apart can look yeah. and feel very different. And so, no, this is a real problem for everybody. I think the US um, has matured quicker. So, and it's growing at a faster pace as well. So there is okay. an element of standardization that you get in the US. US uh, that you don't get in Europe and I think that really helps the micro fulfillment in the US and and the size of the stores helps as well you know, they tend to be okay. a bit more logical um as well you know we yeah. we have stores that are L-shaped and you know <laughs> yeah yeah as do we though too so I mean going back to what you said at the beginning then like I mean if micro fulfillment is defined as what you say is, is defined as how you define it then should the U.S. market even be looking at this at a store level? I mean, there's a lot of, you know, there's so much confusion around that. There's dark stores, there's co-location, there's, you know, hybrid facilities that are near and serving the region that are just smaller in scope than, a, say, a traditional centralized fulfillment center. Like, how would you recommend that the American market look at this then? Yeah, that is the million dollar question, isn't it? And I think, you know, we get a lot of retailers talk to us about what what are their competitors doing? And I always say, it doesn't matter what they're right, doing, because right. if you copy them, you're not going to be number one by copying what someone else does. You know, let's look at your business dynamics, your operating model, and let's try and figure out what the right answer is for you. Um, and actually, it, it does vary quite a lot. 
you know, retailers do have different pressures all, you know, all over the place. Um, you know, a good example in Europe would be, you know, Picnic uh, is a mm-hmm. Dutch retailer, online retailer, relatively new player in the market. You know, they have a, a national distribution network for grocery online that they'll use a hub and a spoke, and then the spokes will be converted petrol stations, and they'll do the last mile delivery on kind of small milk floats. Is that, mm-hmm. do you have a milk float? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, get the so idea, small yeah. electric small electric milk float to do yeah. do the last mile now now that is a really innovative solution um and and then you have other retailers like tesco's in the uk that are really focused on creating small automated facilities that are co-located with some of their larger stores and they're really focusing on a on a different approach which is how can they how can they get the maximum property efficiency so the business case is really different what is consistent is that the the retailers are looking for between a two and a two and a half year payback Chris so mm-hmm. so with that in mind if you work up the economics of it you can figure out how much they've got to invest and that is certainly a good starting point let's work with the payback let's figure out the size of the investment and then work out what technology is available and if that meets the goals the one thing you didn't say there too which I'm curious about because it was kind of peppered in behind what you're saying too is is also like what does the customer need right like what is the customer expectation, particularly around the speed of delivery, right? Like how much of your order volume is same day versus not? And therefore, how do you need to build your network? Is that also a, a good assumption or something you go in talking to these retailers about? Yeah, I mean, that's huge. You know, when when it comes to having to satisfy those rapid delivery orders from a grocer that is typically doing a full weekly shop basket, you know, they can become incredibly expensive loss leaders where, you know, they're doing them really to just retain the loyalty. Actually, that's a very difficult decision that retailers are having to make. Do they do they sacrifice some margin? Uh in order to kind of lock in regular customers or not. And we've seen lots of dynamics over pricing, pricing of, um, you know, not just the rapid deliveries, but of kind of loyalty schemes. And, you know, we've seen a lot trialed over the last four or five years. I think what's interesting is, is that the other side of the argument is now coming forward, Chris. And that is not just to say, what can we do to lock in loyalty from a from an offer perspective, but what can we do to lock in loyalty from a service perspective? Hmm. Um, the, the service is very much about making sure that you do what you say you're going to do. And what we've been able to see in our analysis of retailer baskets is actually when you when you let a customer down if you let them down once there's a 15% chance that they'll go and they will try another retailer if you let them down twice it's a 44% chance that they'll go so what we're seeing is the importance of really making sure that the equipment does not stop uh, it is huge if you disappoint the customers then there's a very low barrier to them searching for for an, an alternative provider um so that that is a unique dynamic, I think, uh, about the online market in a way that, you know, if you're physically shopping in store and you find uh, your product isn't there, we talked uh, previously about zucchinis. So we don't have zucchinis. We call them courgettes. But <laughs> if you if you can't get your courgette or your zucchini, then you'll naturally just pick out another product without really, it won't necessarily damage the brand. But obviously, if you show up to a customer's home and you haven't got their zucchini, that's that has a consequence. Um, 
So yeah. we're finding all sorts of service dynamics are really, really important when it comes to MFCs. Uh, and it's trying to find a balance between, you know, the, the, the service and the offer. And James, there's so much that goes into that. I mean, we're talking about one, the customer perspective and how you're paying off, you know, whatever the customer demands are, whether that's rapid delivery or that's curbside delivery. As as retailers are thinking about this, the executives are thinking about investing in this to pay off that customer expectation. One of the hurdles that they have a hard time getting over is the expense that comes with outfitting their stores with this automation. It can get pretty expensive. What advice do you have as retailers are taking into consideration their customer expectations and then what investments they should be making or how they should be investing in the automation that they're going to put in store so that it's right the first time. This is this is the biggest question that we get asked by retail executives. And, yeah. and, and the question is, is, you know, we have a goal, which is a two and a half year, two year payback. You know, if we invest in this small solution in this one particular store, it, it just doesn't add up. Help us try and figure out right. how to do it. And, and the answer in that situation is unless there is enough scale in the store, it is not going to pay back in line with their expectations. Mm-hmm. Um, they are, you know, constantly think, you know, we we are constantly thinking about how to keep the machine, you know, the automation that you're putting in busy. The only way in which you achieve a two, two and a half year payback is by keeping it busy for most of the time. Now, we don't all get deliveries, you know, at 3 a.m. We we need right. to shape, you know, we've got to try and find a way to be able to, to shape volume so that we keep our investments busy for longer. And that's the key to automation. So, couple of things on that theme. The first is that bigger is more cost effective. I think that's fairly obvious mm-hmm. when it comes to automation. Yeah. Um, but 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 also when we look at uh, the role in which that automation plays, if we can use it for different activities, not just grocery online picking, but also store fulfillment, we can use it for processing returns, we could use it for, um, you know, relabeling, any kind of value add servicing, then actually the the automation starts to pay back quicker as well. So I'm constantly trying to help retailers think about how they can use automation for multiple purposes. Mm-hmm. So and when more- you're, yeah, when you're talking about automation, what is, I mean, dive a little bit more deeper into that because I don't think I've heard the examples of helping process returns, helping with labeling. Like, are those things that are like the second phase after you make the first investment in fulfilling orders that that you're able to kind of build on top of this once you have the automation installed or how does, how do you kind of find those other use cases and then add that to the justification of the initial expense? There are many types of storage automation and picking automation, but but typically a main uh, a main type of solution would be something called an ASRS. So an automatic storage and retrieval system. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the most common technology is a shuttle. Um, right. And and this this basically you do, I would just treat it as a large storage block. So from a retail yeah. perspective, uh, there is a, a huge advantage in in being able to 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 use this block for anything that requires uh, a precise picking solutions. So right. if you've got convenience stores, actually, it would be great, wouldn't it, if we could pick on a more granular level for some of our convenience stores. They don't always need a case of bourbon or, or you know, they don't need full case replenishment all the time. Mm-hmm. So a, a, a co-business case that I would couple with micro-fulfillment might be looking at individual unit replenishment to some of the local smaller stores. That's a classic, mm-hmm. because then you can do that in the quieter hours when you're not picking for your grocery online operator. 
operations. So I think, and you just, we just need to think wider in terms of what are the problems that the retailer is trying to solve. And then we, we find that there's some logical fits with, with the grocery online technology. Right. Yeah. And Jim, I never thought about that. Yeah. And Jim, I mean, a lot of that makes sense. Like you're trying to get the skill out of the equipment investment, right? The, the capital investment. That's, that's essentially what you're talking about here. And, and, you know, over the years, we've talked a lot about the efficiencies of of automation and micro fulfillment for picking, and also for last mile delivery. If you're coordinating those two things, but but my question for you is, and and this is partly why we have you on because you're very candid in how you discuss this topic too. Is when retailers haven't done this right, what goes wrong? Like, what are some examples of the things that go wrong when you see them implement this, not with the right thought process or not in the right way? Okay, well, we'll just talk generally. I won't uh, pick out. Yeah, no, don't pick on anybody. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I'll get. I'll start getting. Want to open mailed. up any wounds? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, look, the big, uh, the big problem is not planning. So, um, not planning for enough, or not planning enough. Yeah, either planning too much or too little, Chris. Basically, and you end up with a solution that either is is too busy too soon in its life cycle. So these things need to last for ten, fifteen years. But if you build them too big and it's underutilized, that's a poor investment. If you build them too small, they're busy too quickly. That's also a poor investment because you've you've then got to duplicate a solution somewhere else at, at, with a with a lot of additional costs. So. So planning properly is is absolutely key. And most mistakes are through not planning properly. When we think about clever um, strategies for growth, being able to use the technology in many different ways plays a really important part again. So as an example, if we move away from micro-fulfillment and look at regional fulfillment and trying to use that for e-grocery, actually that, that becomes a really compelling business case because you know what we can do is we can support many different stores. So you could start off supporting 10 stores at the start of the life of the solution, and then that's full. And then as, as your business grows, you reduce the number of stores that you're supporting with a regional facility. So, so trying to find ways to keep the investment busy all of the time, but also smart ways to be able to plan for, for growth over a longer time frame is absolutely key. From your perspective then, do you think the risk is lower than going back to where do you want to place these facilities? The risk for you is probably lower going with kind of a hybrid regional approach that supports seven to eight stores versus like saying, hey, we're going to go really small in one particular store and try to put the right automation solutions into that environment. Is is that the right extrapolation to what you're what you're discussing here? Look, the reason it's not black and white is that there will always no. be a case where there's a big store in a particular area and it makes sense to try and do something it does there. a ton but, of volume, yeah. Yeah, T- typically though, I, I you know I do favour a a a, a, de- a you know a decentralised approach. It does give you a lot more flexibility in terms of how you process the orders in lots of different ways. So, you know, an example would be like we've just said, you could service lots of different stores, keep the machine busy, and then as the business grows, you just reduce the number of stores and you end up with multiple regional sites. That's a very very uh, clever strategic way to grow. But then on a practical level, you know, you have a power cut in one store actually you can still service those orders because you can do more regionally as the business grows in different zip codes actually you can control how much you do where yeah it's just a much more flexible approach to long-term growth the problem with automation in in a in a in a a store as well is 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 all automation 
has to be serviced and, and it doesn't work like an aeroplane. It does break. Every automation solution on the planet breaks from time to time. Now, when that happens, if if it's in a if it's in a store and that is your only route to be able to service those customers, that is a route to customer disappointment. Actually, mm. by regionalizing it, but also then having some capability in the shops nearby, that's the perfect world. You've got 100% resilience in the stores. I really favor the idea of having the ability to pick your grocery order in multiple locations at any moment in time. Once retailers have made this initial investment and like you're saying, they decide like, okay, we did the regional stores or the regional center to support all these stores. Now we're going to start going into a few of these stores independently. Are they able to take and like reuse some of that automation or like build upon it? Like how, how, um, how systematic is this development? Does it, is it one size you, you, do it specifically for that regional center or could they take and like break this out and spread it apart and then kind of almost like Legos, like they're just building it up at each individual location. So that investment initially isn't lost. That is the perfect answer on is actually, but that happens at a software level, right? And actually okay. you can have, you can have different types of equipment working together in different locations. That's not a problem but actually tying it together into a single universal software platform that's the key mm -hmm. and if that platform then can also dynamically plan loads for you as well then that that's the perfect answer because you know there are good good reasons why you know an order might come from one store on one day and the exact same order might come from a different store on a different day so actually having a single system ecosystem that sits on e-grocery for a region is absolutely key to getting the best efficiency and then helps you plan and learn, I guess, for other stores to imagine or other expansion into other regions. It becomes super easy to just add bolt on another store and to test out different regional setups. And then you can manipulate them and move them back again. There's a kind of a, you know, uh, one conversation we often have is how can you iterate? How can I grow slowly over time? Well, you could start off just by putting the system layer into a store, running it basic, but having the regional center as kind of a, a support structure, you could okay. end up with a very, you could start with a very simple solution. Just check that the volume is there in the region that, the, the store, you know, is capable of delivering that you do have the customer base that you expect, and then you can invest in the automation later on. So I think there is a route through to, um, to growth that way as well. Right. You can learn, you can learn what automation you need through the software and the application of human labor to understand the demand and the volume coming through that area, which, which it sounds like that's actually how the European market has developed over time as well, because they've got a longer history of e-commerce for grocery than say the U S does too. So, so James, I'm curious, we would, we, we don't want to put you on the spot and have you name names of those that have suffered the battle scars of doing micro fulfillment the wrong way. But we do want to ask you, we do want to put you on the spot here and ask you, um, what are examples of grocers or retailers in the US or abroad that are doing this well, that are seeing the fruits of thinking about this the right way? One of the, the retailers we've already spoken about uh, in this episode is um, is Picnic. And I think that they really are onto something in terms of you know, creating a very, very efficient last mile delivery. That's super. James, what's what's your advice? What's your approach? Like as we're as we have listeners now listening to all the examples that you shared from the UK, from the US, I mean, where's the best place to start and how are you kind of helping them decide how to like find that Goldilocks perfect spot in the middle, not too small, not too big? 
It's about it's about understanding their operating model, Anne. And if we can, um, you know, my one bit of advice would be is to 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 really analyse where your cost drivers are in your e-grocery operation. And trust mm. me, it's different for everybody. Right. Um, not just not just wages being very different in different geographies, but but you know, property costs and rental are very different, as are you know, picking costs. And you've got to really understand that to understand where your biggest opportunities are if you come to the conclusion that actually you know it's all about the last mile because you're spending an awful lot on that 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 last mile delivery then the key to really deal with that is actually not to invest in 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 a in a in an individual store but to try and pull it back and optimize those last mile deliveries over a much bigger geography that's definitely the key there if the key is picking efficiency well there's a lot of variables there. So if you really want to focus on picking efficiency, then there's there's a there's a solution for everybody out there. And you know, we provide a type of solution, but I think it would be fair to say, you know, our competitors have have equally as good solutions. Um it's about finding a solution that has the sweet spot for your business. So, you know, this is the the secret of, of automation is the mechanical design of automation is designed to, to be optimized for a particular building height or building size or a particular SKU portfolio. Uh, they're all designed with an ideal customer in mind. What you've got to do is a bit like speed dating. Mm-hmm. You need to get out to the market, you need to meet all the integrators and you need to work out who's got the best kit for your business basically. Um, and that that would be my advice is get out there, meet as many integrators as you possibly can. Hopefully you come and meet TGW in the process. But, you know, we're, we're not afraid of a fair fight. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and hopefully, hopefully you'll find a partner that actually has a product portfolio that matches your SKU, you know, your order profile, your geography as well. James, one last question I want to ask you, too, because you mentioned at the outset, too, was the preponderance of curbside pickup here. So if you're a grocer in the United States, it has, say, overshares in terms of their curbside volume or is aspirational in terms of desiring to overshare in their curbside or their short pickup volume. What last advice would you have for them as they're starting to think about how to approach micro-fulfillment as an idea? The curbside model is something that I'm myself learning quite rapidly about. So as we are talking to US retailers more, you know, we are analyzing that part of the operation in more detail than we have in Europe. What what I've learned so far is 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 it is it can be a tremendous bottleneck um if you can't get the orders flowing directly to the drivers. And so investing in, you know, technology that not just does the order picking and the order storage but then also is is can neatly sequence uh, pickups and also hmm. efficiently distribute them so that drivers can 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 come uh, you know if it's a, if it's a delivery it's a driver or if it's a customer it's just effectively distributed that little bit further you know typically in Europe the automation stops when the order is complete and then it yeah. gets loaded onto a van manually and that isn't the case in the US I think we can just do a lot more to make that pickup more efficient um yeah, yeah, that's so brilliant because I know that's one of the bigger issues that a lot of the curbside pickup retailers are still dealing with now. It's, you know, how do you, you've got the picking time down, but then how do you get that product out to the consumer, especially once they're sitting in the car waiting, have to imagine, you know, that 
those stats you gave earlier of like, if you get my delivery wrong, I'm willing to, you know, 15% of the time yeah. I'm fine. 44% of the time I'm going. I mean, I have to imagine the same is somewhat true for curbside pickup. Maybe I'll wait for five minutes the first time, but if I wait for 10 minutes the second time, because you don't have that automated that's going to be a problem too. For sure. The, the, and you know, the profile isn't consistent throughout the day. We all want to come no. at exactly the same time and right. you know, we create these. There's more these, bottlenecks. Oh yeah. We create There's amazing spikes. And, yeah. 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 And if you know, if you plan for those spikes, you end up creating massive overcapacity. So yeah, neat ways in which you can create dynamic buffers right at the very last moment before pickup is key to being able to flatten the volume further back up the operation and not over invest. Um, yeah. I think that's a, that's a huge opportunity for, for the U S and that's certainly it's an area in our designs where we're finding a lot of innovation. Well, James, I cannot tell tell you how much I appreciate this conversation. Yeah, this is We've great. covered micro-fulfillment for a long time, and I learned, learned so much lot. more today. Um, just how you're doing things with the retailers you're working with in the UK and Europe, and you know how you're starting to see some of those similar practices emerge here in the US. So I'm sure our listeners want to get in touch with you and find out more and, and have even deeper conversations with you. If they want to do that, what's the best way for them to connect with you? Thanks, Anne. It's um, it, probably easiest just to to message me on LinkedIn. Find me up, James Osborne, TZW, and I'll show up on on LinkedIn. And uh, please, yeah, if you if you want to continue the conversation, then please shoot me a message. Thank you. Well, find James Osborne, the grocery man himself, um, on LinkedIn. <laughs> yeah. Thanks again, James, yeah. for sitting down with us. And on behalf of Chris, myself, and all of us here at Omni Talk, to all of you, be careful out there. <laughs> <laughs>